We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the True Faith Radio Show. Thanks for tuning in. We're not live at the moment. We've pre-recorded this due to various Christmas commitments of the lads. Um, and we obviously on Radio Northumberland. Joined tonight to talk about a few things by um, Michael Collin. Hello, Miggy. Hello. Full name again? Full, full name. I'm trying to build you a Twitter following here. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone wants to follow Miggy on Twitter, is he's got the longest screen name ever which just makes it really hard to tweet him because he takes up unnecessary characters with like seven eyes and Mickey, but I'll post that later. Um, we're at TF Weekly Pod. Please give us a follow. And before we start the show, I just want to say there is a brand new issue of True Faith out now. Uh, it is online at www.true-faith.co.uk. It is completely free. It's the only free fanzine in the United Kingdom. Over 100 pages of solid Newcastle United content. And anyone who listens to this show really should be reading True Faith because you're all obviously very well educated people with great taste. So you know, please, please download True Faith. Um, Miggy, we'll start off. You were at Tottenham Hotspur at the weekend. Funnily enough, uh, we're recording this on the Thursday, Miggy. It is a year to the day since that black day at Spurs last year. Um, I didn't come. Remember. You didn't come, but God, I can't. A, I can't believe it's been a year, but so many bad, terrible memories. Bad, terrible memories. How fitting then, on the same week, kind of, um, that we've gone to White Hot Lane and won, and you you experienced it. Tell, tell us about your day. Yeah, it was glorious. It was a, it was an utterly glorious day. Went down, just went down with a couple of lads, one of whom I've not seen in, a, uh, in about a year. Went down basically just to have a few beers in a different city. and I, I just didn't care about the match. I know we won last <laughs> week, but we're, Tottenham are playing so well. We've been so so poor away from home that I just thought it's it's going to be three or four minimum, and I'm just I'm just going to go in without with the attitude of not caring about the match, and I managed to hold that kind of attitude for most of the day. Um, obviously got the tube and train across. We actually had pretty good crack with all the Spurs fans who came across. Went to a um, 
a little Irish Irish bar next to the um, next to the ground, and like just before the match for for one or two pints, and I spent the time there just talking to Spurs fans who were all pretty pretty sound down to earth. They were quite down to earth about their chances of winning the league and stuff, which obviously they have to be because they're not going to win the league. <laughs> uh, and they were quite sort of they were quite nice about Newcastle. They were saying that they, they sort of wanted us to do better, and there was positives in the team and all that. Something that I've, I've basically never come across in an away game before, and certainly not at Spurs. I've always had bad, bad times at Spurs and not really got on with any of the fans. But this time was completely different, and there was a weird, there was a weird sort of atmosphere in the ground amongst our fans. It was we started fairly quiet. The, the team started fairly quiet. The fans started fairly quiet, and it really tailed off after they scored. Um, I think everyone just sort of thought the worst at that point. We'd done all right, but we'd conceded a stupid goal, and it, was, it would be just like Newcastle then to collapse. Yeah. Particularly this season. Um, so we held out at half time, had a few beers then, and then came back out, and everything was just totally different. I've, I've done this stupid interview with a, like <laughs> a Tottenham fan thing where I said we were terrible, obviously because I've had too many pints during the day. Um, and it just wasn't the case at all. I thought we were absolutely excellent all across the pitch, particularly in, in defence. but even in the first half, we were creating chances, we were, we were missing chances, we were passing the ball well, moving the ball around, and we were holding Tottenham at bay. And I thought we completely deserved the equaliser. And at that point, the whole away end just went, just went absolutely nuts. Um, and there was only at that point, there was only one team that was going to win it. Yeah. And obviously, there's, there's basically no better feeling than scoring a last minute winner away from home. Uh, <laughs> the entire stand went crazy, like people were were dancing on the way out of the ground like just jumping on Spurs fans and <laughs> it was absolutely it was absolutely crazy no uh, one of the one of the best ways I've had and one of the best ways I've ever had and I never thought I'd say that about an away game in London yeah yeah uh, next it'll be Villa away this year Mickey <laughs> when you come yeah. back full of, full of tales of Villa fans being nice I doubt it um, especially what we want to store for them hopefully um that's that's a really good story. I'm obviously pleased you had a good day. Um, personally, I, I I was going to our sponsors Phoenix Taxi's Christmas party um, after it, and I thought to myself, I don't want to have a few because I was going to watch it in town with a few drinks, and I thought I don't want to just be miserable because if I have a few drinks, I'll just get really angry, like at Newcastle, and then I'll go to the Christmas party all all aggressive, <laughs> and no one, no one wants that. Um, and then I, I, I don't know. I suppose you, you were there, but I, I, I think I said to the podcast on Monday, I was in that weird position of not really knowing how to react when we scored. Obviously, I was watching it at home on telly alone, and I jumped up and went nuts. And then I was like, what do I do now? I, I don't understand. Like, I've never, like you say, Newcastle dominating the game, dominating the second half, like, getting a last-minute winner against a team who hadn't lost at home, was lost, like, two home games now in the whole of 2015, and like, arguably the most informed team in the league as well. Yeah, how do you? What what do I do? Do I should I just sit here and be happy? Like I, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to be in the away end to expend some energy because it was just like, well, I can't just sit here and just watch telly now. Like I was so so. I'm still buzzing. It was it's absolutely brilliant. So I can imagine how you feel with those memories. Yeah, um, I was right on the end of the row as well, and there was this, there was a big group of stewards. I I was like five rows up or something from the exit, and obviously there was too many people in all the seats, so I was stood on the stairs and they went. They just went crack straight away, like, you're not standing there, blah, blah, blah. One of the lads had to move. I just managed to move across the aisle. There was a spare seat, luckily, just across. So I was winding the stewards up the entire time. 
one woman in particular, I just sort of kept sticking my foot out just slightly and, and like staring and pointing at her and pointing at my foot. <laughs> just just to wind her up. Anyway, like we scored the first goal and I went down and like just did a big get in in her face but the second <laughs> goal went just went crazy for ages and I found her. She was like trying to was like restrain some tune band that was going too ballistic. I just grabbed her by the head and screamed, get in in her face, kissed her on the head and was just like, Yeah <laughs> Really good. A really good day. I saw a, a few tweets actually saying like the celebrations got a bit too much for some who ended up getting arrested. There was like quite a few arrests made because Toon fans were just going too mental. But yeah, people were people were going absolutely ballistic. There was people tumbling down rows, tumbling downstairs, just run people just running about. I'm trying to think of like the last time that I can't even think. You know, because obviously we've had a few away wins since, but Benfica away is probably the last time I'm thinking where it was just absolute pandemonium when that first goal went in in, in Lisbon like a lot, a lot of like I'm trying to think of like you know some rubbish clubs fans like I don't know um, who was just like Norwich nothing against Norwich fans but I can't imagine Norwich fans have ever been in goal celebrations like you win on Sunday like, I don't think you could really describe it to them yeah. and those those of you who are listening now probably know what we mean where, where when you cast a score away from home it's just like you, you, you're not in control of the situation so you just have to go with it People are going 3,000 people in the same area just completely lose any sort of like care for their own well-being yeah. as mental as possible <laughs> but it's, it's just I, I'm, I was so happy I know this sounds condescending but I was so happy for, for you and, and the other people there at the game because it's just like like you say going to London and back it's two things that well it's not two things it's not cheap and it's and it, it's not like time efficient you've yeah. basically given up the best part of two days because of the preparation like you can't go out the night before. A lot of people like you realistically can't start work at seven a.m. Or a lot of people can't um, for getting back and stuff like that. And you're giving up something, even though, like you say, it's going away from home, and you you, you know you're having a good drink and you're with mates and stuff like that. And that is part of the appeal. But you know, anyone really who's sane doesn't go and fork out like forty-five pound for a ticket, like eighty quid on travel minimum. <laughs> Like sixty quid on booze, and just just for just for as a set of fans to be given that at the end of what has been the worst year supporting Newcastle in my life, not that we're particularly old, I'm twenty seven, but um, it was just good for the whole fan base to get that to get that win. Yeah, I totally agree. Like for for so many people who have gone down, everyone as well was com- like in total knowledge of we were going to get beat. Yeah, so everyone's gone down just for the just for the crap and just to support the team and we've been gifted. One of the best away wins I think I've ever seen. In the last away game was Palace away as well. So some turnaround. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, what what a day! I think we, we did most of the analysis in the podcast this week, but I think it's worth saying again. And I've watched the um, the full game back, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I, I tend to do. Um, and he, he, like like you say, that I probably wasn't as aware at the time of how comfortable we were because when you're watching it live. You're like, oh, oh my, like, were they going to score? Or what's going to happen here? But Spurs had one shot from outside the box. Didn't have a chance in the second half. Um, I don't think there's many times Spurs this season have had a half of football where they just haven't created anything. Elliot's made a, a decent save, one for the cameras, as usual with Elliot, but a, a decent save in the second half from distance. Um, but it was just, it was just so comfortable. And I, I actually remember thinking at one-one in the ninetieth minute. I was kind of thinking, well, it doesn't. It doesn't even matter if we concede here, because obviously we need the point. But we've proved 
the team have proved to the fans, the manager and themselves that they can put a performance like this against a good team. Yeah. So I was thinking, well, whatever whatever happens, we're going to take on a Villa. This this can be a good football team. It's not just like against Liverpool. It was better than Liverpool because against Liverpool we were good, but defensively, and that's it. We weren't good offensively. We did what had to, what had to be done. We deserved the win, in my opinion. But against Spurs, we've gone and we've played some football in the second half, and we're we're worthy winners of that match. Um. So yeah, it was a, a good day all round. Um, the performance is arguably more important than the result. Yeah, that's that's my point exactly. My point exactly. But better summed up by you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I suppose. That moves us on now to a, a crucial stage of the season. I mean, every stage is crucial when you're when you're at the bottom like us. Um, we're we're going to talk about Chelsea a little bit later in Mourinho, um, but Villa at home, Vile, uh, West no sorry Evan at home, West Brom away, three games there. You've got to be thinking, oh, you know, you'd, you'd love six points from them would be magic. Six points would get us to what we on sixteen because on twenty two points. After exactly half the season gone, which would represent, after, you know, for most of the season we've been operating at well less than a point a game. Didn't get our first win until mid October, so twenty-two points would be a fair old return. Um, we'll start. Start. We may as well start with the the main events tomorrow night. Um, Aston Villa at home, Mickey. Why don't you tell the listeners without swearing your thoughts on Aston Villa as a football club? Could be a very difficult thing to do this. <laughs> I think anyone who wants to know how we really feel about Villa should should either listen to the podcast on Monday coming or just have a look on our um, on our sound complex sound sound count <laughs> sound cloud page. And um, one of the first things we released was a little snippet, a three minute snippet of just everything we'd said about Villa so far <laughs> for the podcast. And it's, it's a good listen. I listened to it myself today, um, and that sums it up. The way I feel about Villa is just. It's, it's unlike the feeling I have for anything else in the world. I just utter, utterly, utterly despise Aston Villa and everything associated with them. It's a horrible, horrible city full of horrible people <laughs> that don't care at all about their own club. They just care about everybody else. Like They've got terrible, terrible players. They've given the job to a good manager, but in a position where he's not, he's not going to be able to turn it around. They're, they're too bad. Regardless of what he does in January, and hopefully regardless of the result of the weekend, they're going to get relegated. In which case, he's not going to stay. I just want I want Villa to be relegated and never surface again. I hope <laughs> they get relegated and then relegated again and again and again until they have to fold the club. And all of their fans should be banned from ever watching football again when that happens. <laughs> yeah, fairly well summed up there. I would I would absolutely echo everything that you've said there. Um, yeah, I'll start with with what kind of place Villa is. Anyone who's ever been to Villa Park, there's there's nothing good about it. It's it's not even like it's obviously it's a very old stadium, and it's looking its age, but it has no redeeming features at all. There's no decent pubs. There's no like it's not it's not a nice area. But a lot of football clubs, apart from Newcastle, obviously we're very lucky, aren't in particularly nice areas of of the city. But it just seems to be in a in a really terrible area with terrible roads. Like awful transport links. Like getting away from Villa Park is a nightmare. It's easier getting away from bloody St James's in the heart of one of the the UK's great cities compared to the middle of nowhere, which doesn't make any sense. Um, it's it's awful. The 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 away end is awful. You're over two tiers. Um, 
the one thing that doesn't get mentioned a lot, and, and normally I wouldn't care even slightly about this, but the toilets at Villa Park <laughs> are, are despicable. You never expect a gents' toilet in a in a football ground, particularly in the away end, to be to be nice whatsoever. But theirs are utterly, utterly appalling. It's like, it's like the, they're just not clean for the whole season. <laughs> it's something that they should be really ashamed of because like, like people like people our age. I mean, it's not nice, but it, it's not going to affect your day. But if, if an older bloke, if a 70-year-old bloke's going down with his grandson or something, like that's, that's going to have a big effect on his day. It's not on. It's not acceptable. <laughs> totally agree. I mean, the, the, the 2012-13 season, the club lost £51.8 million. Pounds. Like, if you, I couldn't... You, you know, it wasn't OK, and it's since been proved to be a disaster. But you know when Leeds lost all that money? At least, yeah. at least the gambled... At least it was like, right, lads, uh, we're going to try and like make one of the biggest clubs in, in Europe and we're going to get in the Champions League and we're going to play in the Champions League. We're going to get the Champions League semi-final and then it's all going to go wrong. And you'd spoke to a lot of Leeds fans at the time. You'd be like, well, don't do that. But I like, you, I like your ambition. Yeah. Villa lost 52 million quid, finishing 16th in the league. <laughs> how, 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 how? Like, just give up if you're that bad at something. Just, just apply for relegation. Like, I mean, <laughs> I just don't know how. Like Randy Lerner, um, who's put in 90.1 million pounds of his money um, that he's converted to equity, like which is which is a similar thing that Ellis Short and you know fair play to them because they'll never get that money back. Um, but again, so, so realistically, that that takes that to like 150 million quid. Like in in the richest league in the world. Honestly, words fail me for how badly run that football club is. And, and don't get us wrong, we're a farce. No one in here is trying to take the moral high ground. But like I said in me True Faith preview, I've done the match preview for True Faith, which is online. Uh, which, by, the way, by the way, Dodds, is, is absolutely excellent. I don't know. Thank I you very much. I don't any credit or, or even acknowledging that I read anything you write, but this one was very good. <laughs> yeah, cheers. Um, I've, I've said in that preview um, that... You've put us off, and I make you. I'm so stunned to get to, 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 to fact that, that again the acknowledgement that you can't read at all <laughs> because normally when I ask you to read anything, you just say you can't read. Um, well, I, I've said a lot of things in the in the match preview, but I know you, you'll have to read it. I've lost, I've lost my train of thought here. Um, so, so we're talking about all the negatives of Villa. We've talked about the stadium. Yes, sorry. What I said in the match preview was that Villa's fan gates are just embarrassing. Like, fair enough that they're rubbish. Like, I don't blame people, Villa fans, for not going. I wouldn't go if I was a Villa fan. But, but like, Villa are one of those clubs that... Like, for example, at Leicester at home, we got just under 49,000. And then Liverpool at home was just over 51, even though it was on telly. So that's an improvement for the bigger team. Villa will get, like, 28,000 against an average team and then be nearly sold out against Arsenal. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, it's pathetic. Go and support your team. Like you say, they only care about other club, other other people. They only care about the big clubs. They're like their obsession with Newcastle United. Like if they cared as much about their own club as as other clubs in the league, maybe they'd win a few more home games against terrible teams instead of getting beat all the time. It's just it's such a it's such a the antithesis of everything I like about football. It's such a baffling attitude that their fans have got. I mean, it's. It's totally epitomised by the attitudes towards Newcastle, but it's the same. It's the same across the board, really. It's and it's it's similar to Sunderland fans, but it's it's more 
unwarranted. Like with Sunderland fans, you can sort of understand why they have an obsession with Newcastle because we're we're a bigger club. We're very close in a, in a much bigger, more successful city as well. Yeah, there's a big history between the two sets of fans in the two areas, so you can understand. You can understand based on the hate and, and the fact that Sunderland are absolutely terrible as a football club. And, and our success over the past twenty years. <laughs> why? Why? The, why they're obsessed with us? But Keller, like, <laughs> why? Before before we went down and were relegated on that fateful day in two thousand and eight, um, as far as I was or anyone else that I've spoken to about it ever was aware, there was no black, no bad blood at all between Newcastle and Villa. It was one of the teams in the league where we were just like, oh, it's just Villa. It's kind of where we're thinking about West Brom now. It's just West Brom. It's just mm-hmm. Villa. You don't really, you don't really care that much if they beat you two one at home. Like you're a bit gutted about the game, but it's not like, oh, Villa man. It was never. <laughs> it was nothing. Nothing there whatsoever. And, and just out of nowhere came this this utter obsession. I mean, making banners for it. And, and all, it's just, I, I literally can't even put into words how confused I am about Villa's obsession with, with us and with other teams in the league. Doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. What, what, are they, what are the football fans for? I mean, a good example of this, Mickey, is Villa's away support. Villa's, like, Villa's away support to Newcastle is terrible. I don't think they've ever in my lifetime brought 3,000 here. Ever. Not that far. I would consider it quite quite a close away game for us. I know, I know we're different. But there are... I mean, you know when we beat them 6-0? There was yeah. literally about 300 of them in level 7. It was just it was just embarrassing. Yet every time they play at Liverpool, where they'll get beat. <laughs> and every time they play at Man United, 3,000. It's just like, lads, you're not... Surely you'd rather see your team win or have a much better chance of winning. Like than 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 going to Liverpool and getting beat five 0 It just it just, I, I don't understand how the, how the, how their minds work as fans. It's just absolutely baffling. It's uh, also the thing as well. Um, I, like even if, it, if like with Newcastle, it's a good it's a good weekend. It's a good place to come for a drink. Yeah, it, it's, I can understand why they would take more money there than they would at Sunderland because there's absolutely nothing <laughs> there. But but like why would the surely there's surely there's groups of lads like us. And like most of the listeners that we've got, that think, well, that'll be a decent day. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 they have a very poor record against Newcastle, but you're right. That wins I'll ever stop does going anywhere. Um, when I traipsed down to Wigan for the fifth time to see we get beat five years in a row, I wasn't thinking, oh well, I've got I've got the time and the money to go to Wigan away, and the lads are going. But I'll tell you what, we'll probably get beat or stop at home. Like you just don't have that thought process as a football fan, do you? Um, it's very, 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 very strange. And like you say, that we've talked on the podcast before. I wrote about it in my preview. That, that day in 2009, like you say, I was just blown away by it. Like, I've, we've relegated teams before. I've been there. Relegated Cardiff a couple of years ago at St. James's. You didn't see any banners for Cardiff, did you? You didn't yeah. see... Don't take any joy out of sending a team like that, don't they? You've got no, no hate towards. It's, it's just... I my, my personal take is it that day in 2009... It made Aston Villa for a very short period of time relevant, and they're such an irrelevant club. And they did used to be a big club, of course. They won the European Cup in whatever nineteen eighty something, eighty two or something. Did you know as well they've had they in their history they've had the most England internationals of any team. No, I didn't. So yeah, you're right. The, the they used to be a big club, no doubt, and they used to have a good fan base. But I don't know whether. Aston Villa's dwindling support has been a result of the how terrible the new breed of Aston Villa fan is. That would that would you know make a little <laughs> bit of sense. Um, but 
it, like like it was it was Aston Villa's day live on Sky. No one really cares about them. They don't really have any rivalries. Like they've got Birmingham, but like it's like one of those things where like you know um, Juventus in Italy have Torino, and it is a big rivalry. But obviously, like Juventus are so successful, and it's a bit like Man U and Man City used to be, where like one club is just so far ahead of the other. Like they don't really get any joy out of beating them. And I think it's the same with Villa and Birmingham because Birmingham, for much of the history, have, have not even cast a shadow on Aston Villa. So, like Villa fans are obviously looking for something to try and cling on to a little bit of relevance. And seeing a big club like Newcastle with a, with a big proper fan base who operate in a big, nice, proper city in a good stadium with loyal fans, I think this was just their, their chance. Because, and I think a lot of people on that last day of the season around the country have been watching that game. I mean, I was I was at the game with you, Mickey, but apparently the lads when we, we when we were at university in Leeds said, like you know that that day I think the title wasn't up for grabs, but you know like Sky have they'll had Chelsea on telly, they'll had Man U on telly, they'll had they'll had Arsenal on, um, but they showed Newcastle against Villa because that was the draw, um, that was the big game, that was a game everyone was talking about across the country. I just think these Villa fans, desperate for a bit of limelight, desperate for a bit of meaning to their football existence try to take it and it's backfiring them because karma I'll not use the word but um, you know in combat to bite you and I, and I absolutely thoroughly enjoy the fact that basically you can pinpoint everything going wrong <laughs> at Aston Villa to that summer <laughs> when they, they spent loads of money they didn't have on trying to get top four um, because they've come sixth that year and it's just it's just been a, a fruitless miserable existence since and long may it continue Mickey should we talk about the game itself, the actual football, rather than just our <laughs> our uh, feelings? Yeah, I guess we might as well. Um, it's hard, though, isn't it? Like, it's 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 almost become like the derby for us. Like, it's so it's so important to beat them because they're so awful as a people place and say the football almost it almost goes out the window. I just I don't care what happens in the game at all as long as we win I know we've been saying how the performance was important at Tottenham similarly at Liverpool defensively if we if we play absolutely atrocious on Saturday and, and sneak a 1-0 win I won't care at all <laughs> we just have we just have to beat them I, I think this could be the this could be the result not the day but the result that, that sends them down it's, it just we just have to win we just have to win I think as well for Villa what might play in our hands is Villa a, a draw for Villa is better but it's still no good yeah. we're, ten, we're 10 points ahead of them I mean even if Newcastle implode like we did in the Carver 10 points is a lot of points to make up yes. so it's, it's the need to win Villa have to win this game a draw is not good enough for them they've played 16 of their 19 games to have Newcastle um, and, and a couple of other I think the next four games will basically dictate the season they need three wins from the next four games which include Newcastle away and Sunderland away um, and uh, like you say if it was a normal game say Newcastle were playing um, I know we've already played them but say we're playing Norwich I'd want more than a 1-0 win I'd think however you need to actually show us that you can play football yeah. as a team you know I, I commented today on Twitter um, so I think it was Mark Douglas banging the drum for Vernon Anita saying he hasn't had the praise he's due for the last two games. Well, it wasn't that long ago since Leicester and, and Palace when he was a disgrace. Um, and, and sensible, smart teams know to give Werner Nieder time and space in the ball. Werner Nieder is good when he doesn't have to think, 
when he can just be there to provide a pass, pop off the ball, keep possession, rotate the play, that kind of thing. When he's actually given space on the football pitch in the opposition, say, right, Vernon, show us what you've got. He falls to pieces. Um, like, normally, I'd, I'd, so if we're playing Norwich or playing, I don't know, who's Bo- well, Bournemouth or someone like that, I'd be like, well, well, we need a bit more. But I totally agree with you. This win will relegate them. If we beat Aston Villa this weekend, they are relegated. They're not. They're not catching us with thirteen points and Wessel in relegation danger. So thir- thirteen points is a funny. It, it's more than double of the points they've accrued in seventeen games. So, so there's no way they're catching. We, we need to beat them. We need. I need the players to understand. Get into this lot early. You look at well, Villa's. Villa's. You can on one hand you can count Villa's non defeats this season. The snake to win at Bournemouth in the opening day, which we did as well, but you know. Um, the snake to win at Bournemouth, which he didn't deserve. The Drew in El Terrible, or El Terrible, or whatever you want to call it, Sun and Villa. Um, that was 2-2. <laughs> the Drew that, and then they've picked up ridiculously fluky draws at home to Man City and away to Southampton. And away to Southampton, they got battered for 30 minutes. At how Southampton didn't score, i never know. And the game before that, with Everton, they conceded within two minutes, got beat 4 0, and it could have been 14. So the key is scoring early. The longer it goes on, 0 0, the better for Villa. Villa are going to do to us what we did to Liverpool and Spurs to an extent, which is which is um, a different story. But Liverpool, where we, first things first, get a half time. If you go in 1 0 up, great, but get a half time without conceding a goal. And then go once you get to 60 minutes, go from there. It's anybody's game. We need to score early. I think I said it the last home game against Leicester. I was like, "When's the last time Newcastle scored properly early in the first five minutes in a home game?" I've, I've lit you, I think you've got to be going back five or six years. Yeah, seriously, no idea when Newcastle last scored early in a home game. We need to get into these from the start. We need to push them back. They wrote me at the back. Brad Guzan is a terrible goalkeeper. Like we have to get them at the get up get at them early, um, and we'll win the game. We'll score first. We'll win the game. I'm convinced of it. I don't know about what you think. Totally agree. Um, with such a football cliche to say, but this is just the kind of game that Newcastle would lose. Yeah. It's 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 really the game that would would want least after these two these two good victories to try and build on. Um, everything you've said about the the setup of the team is, is absolutely right. We need to score early. We just need to control the game right from kickoff. And by control, I don't just mean pass the ball around at the back like McLaren seems to, hmm. to think we're capable of. I mean, like properly control the game be physical be strong make Villa panic on the ball and if we do that we'll win because they're they're atrocious they're a team of atrocious footballers that don't deserve to be in the league <laughs> so yeah. we need to we need to we need to panic them and we need to score early also not just for, for the sake of the game but also to settle our nerves yeah yeah you're right and I really hope the fans stay with the team this uh, this weekend because it's it's a big game and like I said, if we could go into um, Everton at home on the back of three wins, gives us a great chance. And then you've got West Brom after that, who are in fine form but haven't won many games this season. They've drawn a lot of games. Um, it could set us up really nicely. And like I said, if we if we could get to Arsenal away on the 2nd of January with 21-22 points, it'll set us up really nicely for the rest of the season. What would you do with team selection, Mickey? Would you, would, a lot of people are calling to... Uh, you know that from the start, the team that finished at Spurs. Or do you think? Do you, do you think otherwise? Don't know. Uh, just on what you were saying there, when you look back just over two weeks ago, before the uh, before the Liverpool game, when you looked at our running fixtures up until just after Christmas, you looked at it and thought 
we're in real trouble here. And in particular, the Everton game on Boxing Day, I was thinking we're going to get battered. But on the back of the last two results and the positivity in the team, that's now looking like a much more winnable game. I, don't, I still don't think we'll win, but I think we could easily sneak a point out of it. And even the West Brom game, you're thinking they're all right, they've got Pulis, we might struggle in that, particularly if heads have dropped as far as they would have if we lost these two games and struggle against Villa at the weekend. So I think this whole period, as much as we said, it's going to define Villa's season, is definitely going to define ours. And we need, what we need to do is use the momentum we've built up with two good wins to, to just gather points. We don't necessarily need to win all these games, but just gather some points so we can look back at the first half of the season and say we'll finish that strong, let's, let's kick on in this, this second half of the season and we're not chasing chasing desperately the points we need to stay up. Um, in terms of team selection, I understand I understand the argument of uh, of starting Perez and Mitrovic because they both looked excellent when they came on and it, it changed the shape of the team, it changed the shape of the attack, it's, it's got us two goals. But there's a reason that it's done that and it's, it's because it's changed it's changed the shape of the team midway through a game where we've been playing differently it's brought arguably our two best attacking players fresh into a game against tired defenders that have been marking totally different players in the in the preceding 60 minutes or however long it was before they came on and despite the fact that we scored <laughs> two goals when Perez and Mitrovic were on the pitch I thought we were we were excellent with Young and Cissé up front um for the first, whatever it was, 55, 60 minutes of the game against Spurs. And I think they would both be feeling pretty hard done by, in particular De Jong, who has been excellent since he came, since he came into the fold, would be feeling pretty hard done by to be dropped. So, in my opinion, we should we should approach this game tactically in a similar in a similar way to what we did at Spurs, particularly with, particularly with those two up front and providing the ball to Cissé. Out of all of those forward players we've got, I think he's the most likely to be able to bag, bag a goal from nothing early on. Um, yeah, and I, and I want to be able, I want us to be able to bring on two quality players against a very poor and very tired Villa defence after 55, 60 minutes. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And if you look at uh, who's who's coming from the bench, you'd be even as a senior castle with nil nil or one nil down after 60 minutes or something. You'd be far more confident. Uh, Mitrovic and Cissé coming in um, than anyone else oh, so, sorry, than, than Cissé and De Jong um, but yeah it's, you just like you say you just want I, I like the fact that Mitrovic and uh, Perez are out of the team because it means there's competition for places those two players want to be starting and they're not that's a good thing for me as long as the players who are keeping them out of the team are contributing somewhat uh, then it's positive and if you look at when Teote comes back I want Anita to play well this week and I know I give him a lot of stick but if, if, if Teote's got to wait to come back in the team then that's again that's a positive thing um, and we're starting to finally see some some competition for places I think this is this game is a, a good test of how well the team has evolved in the mentality like I think you made a great point there when you said we need to start picking up points um, which is crucial uh, from, from games not, not necessarily winning and if you look at games earlier this season if you look at for example Watford at home Watford who are flying now and playing really well Watford didn't play that well against us I'm not saying they didn't deserve to win but they got they got the two goals they didn't really have any, any other chances I think they had one other chance in the second half apart from that that's a game that Newcastle should have won but if you can't win then take something from it yeah. and, and that's what we need to start seeing a little bit of maturity from a team who think right we can't 
win every single game. Let, let's make sure, first of all, that we're in the game, not like Watford 2-0 down after 20 minutes, and all of a sudden it's like, oh dear, <laughs> how, how are we going to pull this one back? So it'd be really interesting to see if we can pick up points. And footballers at this level is about confidence and about putting runs together. Any, every time I do a, a quiz for this radio show, I'm like blown away about the runs that would go on, even on the likes of Glenn Roder, especially under Robson and, and, and Keegan. And all of the best results, like rarely do the good results come in isolated games. And I know Liverpool is, is the antidote to that. But I don't think Spurs happens without Liverpool. So, and I don't think we can beat Arsenal. I think the only way we can go into that game against Arsenal away from home is if we're on the back of one defeat in 10 or something like that. Or six wins out of eight. That's what McLaren and Newcastle need to start doing to, to see a little bit of progress. Um, I think I, I don't actually know what the stats are, but I feel I may be completely wrong on this. So call me out if I am. But I feel like we're we're the kind of team that doesn't doesn't necessarily draw that many games, or we may draw games that we we should have won. But I, I, I don't think that we draw games that we should have lost. I don't think we we claim many points that we didn't deserve. I think that's been the case for a long time. Yeah. If you if you see what I mean, we're not claiming points from games where we're, we're getting nothing, and games that we should lose or a touch and go. We I feel like we lose those games more, way more often than we get a point. I totally agree. We tend to when the uh, Sunday was the first time where we've actually done something to a team late on, where a team like Spurs threw that away against us. Rarely have, have, have we played a team where you thought, yeah, you threw that away. Um, which is a good thing because we've actually nicked, like nicked it. Uh, and that, that's what good sports teams do. They win games uh, that they necessarily shouldn't shouldn't win. And it's not just about playing badly because you can still play badly and deserve to win a game. Um, but it's about it's about those deciding moments, which especially in the Premier League when points are at a premium, where you think, right, we've got a chance of winning here. And that's why Sunday was so weird. That's why I didn't know what to do with myself because I was just like, I can't believe that Newcastle have just done that to Spurs. Normally, it's it's, it's the other way around. Um, well, that was the kind of deciding, like the not the deciding factor, but you know what I mean. Yeah, point behind all this very successful Man United teams under Ferguson was that the the won games playing badly and the won games that they did deserve a win or they got points in games where they got battered. That was I think that was always the reason that Man United was so so successful was that they got they got points out of games where they didn't deserve them. Yeah. So, Mickey, we'll start with you. Um, were you surprised by the news? I am, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, he's, he's not been getting results for a long time, but it's Mourinho. He's he was kind of he was kind of above that, wasn't he? So, yeah, okay. it it shocked me a lot, actually. It's more that the, the timing is just absolutely bizarre. Obviously, there was a the played Monday night. Um, so after that defeat, there was a little bit of uh, well, there was quite a few rumours that they were going to meet this week to discuss. Surely, <laughs> surely, like they could have just got on the phone to each other <laughs> and been like, "How are what we're doing here?" Rather than leaving, I mean, the, the play in less than forty-eight hours' time. So why why they thought it was necessary before the Sunderland game um, to sack him? With well, I mean, presumably it's just going to be his assistant in charge. I mean, in what's looking like a, a fairly important game for Chelsea, I mean, if they were to lose this game, I think, would they be in the relegation zone, possibly? Or they'd be certainly not a million miles from it. I suppose it depends on whether uh, Norwich get anything at Man United, which I know normally would sound a bit obscure, but the way Man United have been playing recently, 
there's a chance. Obviously, hopefully, we'll absolutely murder Vile. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you, like you, you were surprised. Why why do you think Mourinho? Um, like you said, there. Why do you think he was potentially above it compared to another manager in his position? It's hard to say, but he's just—he's been so successful everywhere he's been ever since he like first started as a manager. And he, he was so good at Chelsea. He transformed. I know they had they had spent an absolute fortune before he came in, and they, and they did after he after he came in the first time as well. But he, he transformed what was just a rich, like, averagely good team into one of the best teams in the country, and they've stayed there ever since. Um, he left, and a, a couple of people took on what was essentially his team. Didn't change very much at all. And continue to have a similar, maybe not quite as successful stint, arguably apart from the Champions League. Um, and he, he's essentially become a, a sort of managerial icon that was, in my opinion, second only to Alex Ferguson, and then he retired. So now, I think he's fairly widely regarded as, as the best, if not one of the very, very top managers in the game. And for me, he almost put himself in a position where he was where he was unsackable, almost, and he just obviously hasn't quite done that. Yeah, Chelsea are an obscure club for a couple of reasons that, in the way they run. But what's crucial here is that Mourinho had not lost the fans. I mean, you'd be—I'm sure, like any other set of supporters, you'd, you'd be able to find Chelsea fans who wanted them sacked. But the mat, the, the players who went to the matches, the, the, the away fans on Monday, no dis, discontent at all with the manager. It's almost like well. We're not very good this season, but we've had so much success before, and we're obviously with Mourinho and the resources that we we'll have, we will be successful again. That the fans almost, because of their affection for him, thought, "Well, there's no point in sacking the manager." And I suppose that leads me to the next question: Why do you think Chelsea have sacked him beyond the obvious? Well, obviously they're doing rubbish because I don't know what Chelsea's goals are for the season, but they're not going to get top four. It would take a it would take a ridiculous run from Chelsea, but also a massive cock up by one of the other teams for Chelsea to get top four um, why, why Why do you think the Chelsea board have, have thought they have to act uh, to be honest I've got absolutely no idea in my opinion it's, it's completely the wrong decision and I just can't really apart from the fact that he's not been getting the results I can't understand why they've, why they've sacked him I know, I know that seems like a legitimate reason but I think the blame for what's happening at Chelsea really falls falls at the feet of the players um, I can't see, apart from the apart from the new fresh manager like honeymoon period, I can't see what's going to change unless unless there's drastic changes in the transfer market, which could have been carried out by Mourinho and probably would have. Of all the managers in the world, he's 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 one of the most ruthless, and the players that haven't been performing from regardless of the names, Hazard, for example, could very easily have seen himself sold in January for his poor performances. So I I just I have no idea why they've sacked him, and I think they're going to really regret. I I'm trying to think of the reasons why, and you look at obviously his comments on Monday were damning, saying he felt betrayed by the players. That that suggests that he possibly lost the dressing room, or or he was on the way to losing the dressing room. He certainly didn't trust the players, but it's the same players that were really successful from last season. Um, some criticisms I would have him. He, he seems to pick. He seems to absolutely point blank refuse to play with two strikers, which I thought was weird. Like it hasn't been working with the four-two-three-one formation. I mean, me and you, Mickey, we've seen that formation also like <laughs> be terrible for a football team 
under <laughs> Pardew and Carver and McLaren this season and uh, uh, his tactical inflexibilities has been a strange one for me I don't understand why he's why, why you know Leicester play 4-4-2 so why not play Remy and Costa on Monday night and think well we're better than them <laughs> we'll have better players let's go up against them 4-4-2 and it's, he, he's, he's persisted with the one up front and He's also persisted with Diego Costa, who just looks like an absolute shell. I mean, I know Remy's not pulled up any trees at Chelsea, but we again, we have first-hand experience. We know he's a decent footballer. We know he can finish. He scored when he came on on Monday. Um, I just think he's, you know, he's perhaps, to contradict what you said, been a little bit too loyal to the likes of Ivanovic, um, Matic and Costa are the three that have really underperformed. And like you say, the likes of Fabregas and Hazard have been dropped this season, but but the, the the big three who maybe have retained a bit of loyalty, Mourinho have have been the ones ultimately that have been kept in the team. But I agree with you. Like one thing which I'll say against Chelsea fans and the Chelsea board, all this whole idea is that brought back Mourinho. And Mourinho in his first press conference said, "This is it for me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to quit. This is we're going to build something at Chelsea, and that that's a good idea because obviously Chelsea now at the stage where they're looking at what Wenger's done, uh, they're looking at Ferguson and they're thinking sustained success." that doesn't cost you loads of money, uh, is obviously a manager, a successful manager, being in place for a long period of time. And they've obviously thought, like, let's go and get Mourinho. But Mourinho, unfortunately, is not the man for that job. At any point in his career, he's successful for one or two seasons, then he leaves. And Oliver Kay, the Times journalist, um, tweeted on the day Mourinho was appointed in 2013, which he tweeted this tweet, which is obviously getting a lot of uh, airtime now, called the nine stages of Jose. Number one, charm. Number two, antagonism. Number three, success. Number four, more antagonism. Number five, more success. Number six, more antagonism. Number seven, discord. Number eight, failure. And number nine, breakup. And that's absolutely perfect, (laughs) realistically, for what's happened. So I suppose it's in his makeup. But like you say, the, the difference this time is that he's actually been pushed out of a club compared to... Um, resigning, which is what he did at Porto, Chelsea, Inter, Real, and then, well, yeah, that's what he did before. Um, do you I, think, th- I think that's a bit unfair, to be honest. I, apart from Real Madrid, where it really didn't work for me, I don't think he's left any of his teams like on the brink of catastrophe. I, like, I know yeah. Porto had just won the Champions League, they, were, they played way above their station. Nobody would consider them not winning the Champions League again. A disaster by any stretch. Yeah, yeah. He left them in a good position. He left Chelsea in a great position. He left Inter Milan. Same as with Porto, they just won the Champions League. Yeah. If they hadn't won it the next year, people wouldn't be saying that bloody Mourinho wouldn't <laughs> get rid of him. So I, I think that's I think that's unfair. He's, ne- he's basically never given himself the opportunity to build something, and he, he essentially said that himself when he took the job. He said he wants to he wants to stay now. He's not going to move. So I I think although that tweet seems to hold some hold some water at the minute. I don't think it's a fair it's a fair thing to say about Mourinho's career because he's never done it. Yeah, I suppose so and I take your point. I just think it's it's we've talked about the podcast this season, I'm gonna talk I'm gonna pat myself on the back in a little bit about some of the predictions I made early on, which Ben, who's not here to defend himself, absolutely shot me down over them. Um but one of the things we've talked about Mourinho, I can't remember if it was a radio show or it was a podcast, but just said he never these days he never looks happy, even when Chelsea were beating Arsenal this season, or even when they were, you know, winning games. He just, he just, he, he's been very, very unhappy since the end of last season. And here, here's what I'm kind of the, the the pieces of the jigsaw I've put together for Mourinho, 
which might be one of the reasons he's been sacked because he might have turned around to the board and said, I told you this was going to happen. It's your fault. You sort it out. And obviously, you know, Roman Bramovich and the people who are in charge don't really like being spoken to like that or the accusation put their way. But they went on this ludicrous pre- uh, post-season tour to where, like, I can't remember when. It was like the USA or Malaysia or something after the season had finished last year. Yeah. Which, was, which is mental. Like, the rest of the Premier League... All off on the holidays. No lads. We're going another two to three week tour. They then came back, and Mourinho again said they went on another worldwide tour. And they came back from that tour. And while while most teams were in pre season, Mourinho actually sent the players on a week's holiday, like drew in pre season because he said they're nagged, and he was dropping every hint that basically the commercial demands of the club going on these stupid tours was at the um, you know was was creating problems with the actual football needs of the club and the players and you went into that open game of the season against Swansea saying the players are too tired and no one really made a big deal about all these comments because obviously everyone just expects them to win anyway so they've been brought up uh, you know being brought back up a bit recently we also spoke on the very first podcast of the season on the second podcast of the season this is where Ben shot me down I said Chelsea's transfer business was a bit of a joke because if you look at all the big clubs around Europe when did Barcelona or Real Madrid ever just not sign anybody over a summer like if you want to like stay successful you always buy like one class first team player world class player to stay in your team I mean Arsenal did it this season with Czech so at least they did it for a change but that, that, this is the accusation that's been levelled off in the past of just not improving their squad and Mourinho has dropped loads of hints and I don't, I'm not in charge of the transfer business Mourinho very publicly went after two players Stones of Everton and this again this is Mourinho himself in press conference that kind of thing and someone Pogba so he like he was he's clearly expected to have those two players as part of his squad and he got neither they ended up getting Pedro which seemed to be a last minute thing just to wind up Man United <laughs> um, but so, so I'm trying to put all these things together to think well I mean that does, Chelsea still shouldn't be 16th in the league regardless of any of this stuff but I'm just starting to think now. Is as, 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 have they talked to Mourinho this week and they said, "Come on, Jose, we want to back you, but what what are you going to do to turn this around?" Do you think Mourinho's possibly just said, "Listen, lads, I've been saying in public this is all your fault and it is your fault," or do you think it's it's I'm complicating things? That's a, that's a tough one. I think I think everything you've said is completely right. I remember I remember you and and side both saying. Uh, right at the start of the season that Chelsea hadn't done any business and it was a bad thing and me, me and Ben saying you said wrong they were so far ahead last season that they didn't necessarily need him and, where, and looking at the team at the time I said where where do you need improvement and, uh, and arguably there was there was nowhere at the, at the end of last season Terry was playing as well as he has in the last 10 years Fabregas was setting the light and centre midfield and you look at their squad and it was it's a decent sized squad there was no real it didn't seem like there's any real need to spend but Mourinho obviously as you say has seen the gaps and it's the gaps where the two players he wanted are the two positions where they're really struggling the most apart from striker which I don't think anyone saw coming um, so he's looking to bring in a new centre half he's probably seen that Terry wasn't quite there and he's looking to bring in another centre mid Matic hasn't done it this year literally Pogba would have gone in a team instead of Matic so yeah I think I think what you're saying is right and he is, he's such a worthy ticket Mourinho that you can imagine the board saying to him during the week if they've had this meeting and then they've called him in and said what are you going to do about it you can imagine him just saying well I told you so like, I've seen this coming 
And yeah. then someone like Abramovich, who's worth however many billion, he's, he's pumping hundreds of millions of pounds a year. And this football club has got someone back chatting them. He might have just been like, well, yeah, enough's enough. Get yourself away. <laughs> yeah, in those exact words, probably. <laughs> um, yeah, well, who? I mean, we may as well talk about who. Who do you think could possibly come in? Uh, it, again, it, it's just same old Chelsea, isn't it? Like, and this is the accusation of that. Like, I mean, a lot of Chelsea fans are. Well, I'd say the vast majority of Chelsea fans are proper fans because it wasn't like Stamford Bridge wasn't sold out before Bramovich came in. But you got the likes of Rio Ferdinand at the start of the season with his tweets there. For those Chelsea fans wondering who Claudio Ranieri is, he's the manager before you started supporting the club in 2004. And a lot of Chelsea fans um, are after stability, but the club just seems to be... They say one thing, want stability, want a long-term project, but as soon as a manager drops out of the top four, has a a tough six months, we're going to sack them. Like, do you think the next appointment's going to be another Benitez-type short-term thing, or do you think it's going to be literally the, the need to ask now to get a decent manager in and actually back him? Can you see the club changing at all? I I don't think, from the perspective of the fans, I don't think they are jumping on the second bandwagon that you get around a lot of the league. I think they've quite publicly backed a lot of managers that have struggled over the past 20 or so years, however long we've been following football. I can't remember them like hounding out a manager like Wenger has at Arsenal or or, or basically any other club in the league um, I think something that might have persuaded Abramovich to sack him to sack him now is the news the rumours coming out of Germany that Guardiola's going to leave at the end of the season yeah he, he's probably the only person in world football you'd want ahead of Mourinho yeah so I think what what's going to happen is they'll appoint some like some decent oldish manager of the Ancelotti not Ancelotti but of the Ancelotti kind of mould that's been very successful in the past would happily take six months at a big club for a, a big pay packet but he was happy to leave at the end of the season and then Guardiola comes in in the summer yeah well the crack people are talking about Hiddink um, coming back exactly again exactly that kind of person yeah Hiddink six months of Hiddink and obviously the, the, the as of now and it's obviously it's early days Ancelotti incredibly is the favourite um, for the permanent position, which he, really? he yeah he's obviously also favoured for next Man United manager, but surely Chelsea can't keep doing this just like, sacking Mourinho, bringing Ancelotti, sacking Ancelotti, <laughs> bringing Mourinho. But he is a class manager, and he won the league with them. I mean, Ancelotti's two seasons were like four trophies, a first and a second, and they sacked him, which is which is an absolute piss take. But um, yeah, I, I've got no idea. I could see maybe the might. Turn to the lad at Derby, who was at Chelsea, with Ancel- as Ancelotti's assistant, whose name escapes me, um, Paul Clement. Well, yeah, maybe, but it, it's you pulling names out of uh, out of a hat here. It's absolutely crazy. But where do you see whoever they get, Mickey? We'll finish this off. Where do you see Chelsea's season going from here? Do you think the, the, the squad is that good that a new man comes in and yeah, they'll be fine? Whoever they bring in, they'll be fine because the players will start playing. Or do you think there's Bigger problems than that. Uh, just quickly, I want to mention that one of one of the supposed frontrunners for the job is Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, good shout actually, and and he'd take a short term. He would take a short term if he gets the the job permanently. A promise once said, "Look, nice." Um, I I think Chelsea, I think Chelsea have got bigger issues than the manager. Yeah, I, I think who they get in and who, what happens in this window, and, and obviously definitely what happens next summer is 
is going to be crucial. They're not going to go down. Let's not kid ourselves. No. Any team with Hazard in, is just it's just not going to get relegated. There's no there's no two ways about it. I think they'll finish between tenth and twelfth, and it'll be one of the biggest talking points in Premier League history. But they're not going to get relegated. No, I agree. I, I think that their squad depth more than anything will help them out as, as the likes of Bournemouth, Newcastle, Norwich. You know, if we lose a couple of players, like say Newcastle lost, um, like um, Mbemba, or you know, um, Mitrovic got injured, or you know, there's loads of players that could go through. That has a massive difference if Costa gets injured. Uh, um, Remy comes in if Matic gets injured Ramirez comes in there's not that there's not that big of a deal I think that's what will help them long term I, I go back to it I just can't believe they've done it now it's just absolutely mental and it makes you wonder if they really know what they're doing we don't know what's gone on behind closed doors maybe like like we've alluded to Mourinho's just said something which has made his position untenable one thing we haven't spoken about is all that rubbish that went on with Eva Canero which just again from the outside looking in you, you can't you can't defend Mourinho's actions like I don't know. I don't know if you you think differently, but that that seems to me like the beginning of the end. I totally agree. Um, all the stuff that people criticise Mourinho for is is comments in the press, attacking referees, blah blah blah. All of it, I think, is part and parcel of Mourinho, and I, I think it's all part of why he's a good manager because he's constantly deflecting any criticism away from his team. He, he drags it on himself, regardless of what it's for. He doesn't care. He just he just gets the media attention on himself, which works wonders because it, it protects his players. But what, what on earth he was thinking with that woman is, is utterly beyond me. It's the first time I've seen something like that, something genuinely unbelievable from him. Uh, it's, just, it's just bizarre. I just don't know what he's thinking. Yeah. She's, uh, definitely, she's taking them to court, isn't she? But him personally and the club. If she's she do, lose. He's definitely going to lose. <laughs> I, was, I didn't know she was taking him personally. That's a blow. Yes. I'm pretty sure she's taking him personally. But yeah, I, I totally agree. It just makes you, you wonder. Like I know Chelsea have won what three league titles, two under Mourinho, one under no four league titles. This two under Mourinho, three under Mourinho, three three league titles at Chelsea, three league titles in it, and they couldn't even give them like six months. <laughs> um, yeah, they've obviously they've won the four league titles, they won the Champions League, something like three or four FA Cups, two league cups. It's all right and it's it's good, but for them to be. For them to be so rash and just can the project of building a squad and building a team and just to be throwing money at things again. Any new manager coming in will want to spend 100 million quid on his own players. It's just a bizarre thing to do. I think I'll have, I'll, I'll, I'll leave um, the last words words to be about a man who's no doubt got a massive grin on his face right, right now, and that's Arsene Wenger. Um, he's seen off Mourinho twice in the like. You can obviously see that Mourinho is, is always viewed Arsenal as a threat because he goes so hard for Wenger. Like there's all the stuff down the years, but even even as recently as last year when he calls when he called him a specialist in failure, like it did overstep the the mark massively. And obviously Wenger yet again has seen, seen him off, even though he's yet to win out. But uh, the season could could change it. Yeah, well, thanks very much to everybody who who's listened. That's that's the hour up for this week. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with the podcast please tune in follow us on twitter at tfweeklypod subscribe on itunes soundcloud and we will see you then hopefully with uh, a smile on our faces after condemning aston villa relegation mickey thanks for your time cheers thanks
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.